More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Welcome to today's edition of the Clay Travis and Buck Sexton Show podcast. A judge has okayed, after uh, a delay earlier this week, judge has okayed the removal efforts of the uh, Confederate Memorial at Arlington National Cemetery. So they're now uh, in the process. It's supposed to be removed uh, in its entirety by the uh, 1st of January. So this will happen pretty rapidly. And if you were to go and <clears throat> take a look at what's being said on uh, on uh, left-wing websites um, or, you know, New York Times, wherever, they will uh, they'll tell you that this is a victory over racism and the veneration of uh, fascism and slavery and all this sort of stuff. So I thought instead of even just uh, engaging in the high level, why are they trying to tear down statues, memorials, history, and where does this end? Because if any connection of any kind for something to slavery means that it has to be erased and pulled from public display, we're going to have to figure out what we're going to call Washington, D.C., right? We all understand this. They understand it for sure. Um, and, and they view this as, uh, as a weapon to use against the shared sense of culture, history, and, and just understanding of what it is to be an American that we all have today, right? If you tear away, uh, the founding fathers, the constitution, if you get rid of all of that, well, what's left? Well, whatever they decide to replace it with. But I, I actually thought it would be more useful to discuss how we got to this point or what the, the history of this is. The uh, Arlington National Cemetery, uh, believe it or not, I believe it was uh, George Washington's adopted son's daughter had that plot of land at one point. And then Robert E. Lee, yeah, that Robert E. Lee, um, was the executor of an estate uh, that controlled what is now the, it was less, I think it was a couple hundred acres, but now Arlington National Cemetery, National Cemetery is about 600 plus acres. <clears throat> but in terms of the Confederate 
uh, monuments specifically. Um, well, let's go back to what happened. You get after the Civil War, you have Reconstruction in the South, and it basically ends 1877. President Rutherford B. Hayes withdraws federal troops from the South. And as we all know, there are still tremendous racism and, and segregation and, and policies of disenfranchisement and uh, abuse toward uh, black Americans, and it was systemic across the South. <clears throat> so the, the policies or the idea of uniting the country was still had a long way to go in that regard, and it still had a long way to go with regard to just those who were Southerners, white Southerners and uh, Northerners. There was a lot of resentment that was still felt at that time in the country. But then there is something of a an opportunity toward unity that presents itself, as so often happens in societies throughout history, with the beginning of the Spanish-American War uh, in 1898. So all of a sudden you have people who are feeling, you have Southerners, you have white Southerners who are saying, I'm going to go fight for my country. So this was seen as as an opportunity. 33 years after the end of the Civil War, there's this oper- there's this chance to bring the country together against a common enemy. In this case, the Empire of Spain. And President McKinley saw it as this moment in time where something could be done to bring the country together. Uh, McKinley served himself. We all know how McKinley, unfortunately, met his end, but McKinley had served in the 23rd Ohio Infantry uh, fighting for the Union. He enlisted as a private and made it all the way through to 1865 as a, uh, uh, well, as an officer. And he appointed three Civil War veterans to command the campaign in Cuba. Two of them were Medal of Honor winners for the Union. And the third was... Fighting Joe Wheeler, who was a Confederate cavalry general, and he had been elected to Congress in Alabama in 1880 and had been part of the effort to heal the wounds of the country. The Civil War had hundreds of thousands of dead on both sides. Uh, A lot of Americans gave their lives for their cause and for their side. So in 1900, um, Congress authorized, and again, this is part of this move to bring the country, bring North and South further together, you know, emotionally, spiritually, ideologically after the wounds of the Civil War. So in 1900, Congress allows Confederate remains to be, um, taken from their, you know, reinterred, taken from their grave sites around DC and moved to Arlington National Cemetery in, in what is now, uh, called Section 16. So, that was something of a, that was obviously qu- quite a, a change, um, a move toward peace. President McKinley did his peace jubilee, uh, nationwide tour, and he proclaimed as follows. This was actually in 1898, this is before the uh, graves were moved. But he said, in the spirit of fraternity, we should share with you in the care of the graves of Confederate soldiers. Sectional feeling no longer holds back the love we feel for each other. The old flag again waves over us in peace with new glories. Now, to be clear, this this new moment of bonding and bringing together the country still excluded um, African Americans who were in a segregated burial plots at Arlington until Truman 
uh, President Truman in, in 1948 uh, integrated Arlington. Um, so in 1903, you're the first Confederate Memorial Day ceremonies held in the Arlington Confederate section. President Theodore Roosevelt sent a floral arrangement. Uh, so he actually sent flowers along. By the way, um, Jim Webb, who's a Marine veteran, did an excellent editorial laying out a lot of this in the uh, Wall Street Journal, um, in which he was saying, look, I, I think that the move, the removal of this monument, at least understand why the monument is there. Right. For all these people writing, oh, it's awful. It's it's about slavery. It's about elevating the South and racism and they're Nazis, but they're just Nazis before the Nazis existed. Hold, hold on a second. This monument was meant to heal wounds that the country had and bring the two sides together. And people who had actually fought the Confederacy, people who had lost family members to the Civil War, were involved in this process of reconciliation. They wanted the country to come back together. So in 1906, uh, Secretary of War Taft allowed the Daughters of the Confederacy to raise money to build a memorial, right? So first the graves are moved. Uh, there's the reinterred graves, and then they have this memorial that is uh, starting to be built, and it's actually uh, built by Moses Jacob Ezekiel, who is a you know, artist, sculptor, um, and a Confederate veteran, and the first uh, Jewish American to graduate from the Virginia Military Institute. So just some interesting backstory on how this all got built. So there's a, if you look at this, I've, I haven't been to the memorial, I've only seen photos of it, but there's a 30 foot, uh, 32 foot tall female figure, class Greco-Roman kind of classical antiquity looking figure. And then there are a bunch of smaller, uh, figures depicted in the sculpture below. And uh, there are some inscriptions. There's the Latin phrase. Um, well, first they have beat their swords. This is a biblical inscription. Actually, they've beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And the whole purpose of creating this monument at the time was to try to bring together the feeling of, of unity north and south. And that was seen by presidents, by veterans of both sides, by people as a, um, as a worthy goal. And this is not meant to elevate. I mean, there's, there's greater, there's so much more complexity on the issue. Than people will generally allow. And as I said in the, uh, in the web editorial on this, he lays out there were a number of, of states, for example, uh, that did not give up their slaves, who fought for the Union, but did not give up the slaves they already had over the course of the war. I know from visiting the, uh, in Charleston, they have the, uh, the slave, uh, slave auction museum there, um, that 3% of Southerners own 97% of the slaves. And that of the 258,000 Confederate soldiers who died, which is a roughly 30% figure of those who actually took up arms for the South, a uh, tiny percentage of them overall actually even owned slaves. So when you understand, I think, the greater historical context of why this monument was built and what it is meant to symbolize, it is not meant to be um, an excuse for, and none of the people, none of the people involved in in, you know, constructing it, 
the government officials who approved it. It was not supposed to be about, oh, you know, slavery was, uh, was a cause that we should think of as, you know, close, but they didn't win or something, right? It wasn't meant to, it was meant to bring together the two sides that had fought a horrific war that killed hundreds of thousands on both sides and to bring the union together. Um, this all comes, by the way, this destruction, or I should say removal, because officially they're just removing it, but, you know, where is it going to go? It's a, it's in a place of honor, obviously, in Arlington Cemetery. Where is it going to be moved to? Now they'll put it in the basement of some museum, I'm sure. So I know they have some plan for it, but who knows where it will actually end up. This all comes from the George Floyd panic. They also don't talk about this very much. Right, George Floyd, the, um, the, uh, convicted felon and drug addict, who died of heart failure in a uh, interaction with police. Yes, he was convicted of George Floyd's murder. Uh, we could have a whole other discussion about whether that was politically motivated or not and whether the jury even felt they could deliver a fair verdict or not. But in the National Defense Authorization Act of 2021, uh, they it's like almost a trillion-dollar bill. They had the... Empower, they empowered a naming commission to remove, quote, all names, symbols, displays, monuments, and paraphernalia uh, that honor or commemorate the Confederate States of America. So they slipped this into the NDAA, National Defense Authorization Act. And now we're all supposed to think that somehow what? What, what is accomplished by this other than forcing people to, well, one, I think live in ignorance because so few people actually even know how this came to be. It's your Confederate monument. And then they want to just, they want to remove, they want to destroy, they want to take it away. What's the purpose of this specific money? Remember, these are the same, the same voices on the left that wanted to get rid of a statute commemorating emancipation of the slaves with money raised from former slaves to pay for it because they did not like the depiction in the statue of some of the emancipated slaves. It's never enough. I mean, there will never be, you can never um appease this side all you can do is allow them to destroy whatever history that you think you know of this country and replace it with this distorted version of america is a bad awful racist place with nothing redeemable about it and only if we have marxist identity politics obsessed lunatics in charge can we ever you know be a better place um i reject that and i think many of you do as well one of the toughest notions to contend with is the thought that every day thousands of babies never get a chance at life. Unborn children are more at risk by the prospect of abortion than ever before, if you look at the numbers these days. But there's something incredible that is happening. Amidst all that darkness, the pre-born network of clinics nationwide is doing everything they can to save as many babies' lives as they can day in and day out. As this year draws to a close, pre-born will have rescued 44,000 babies' lives. In large part, that happens because of the support of people like you and other individuals in the pro-life community. Preborn uses your donations to provide ultrasounds, counseling, maternity clothing, supplies needed for a newborn, and so much more. You might imagine when a pregnant mother meets her baby on ultrasound and hears that heartbeat and witnesses the moment, uh, the movements rather she feels, her maternal instinct kicks in, and so often she chooses life. Would you join Preborn and sponsoring as many days of life as you can before this year ends? $28 will save a life, possibly, and sponsor an ultrasound. $5,000 will underwrite their entire network for a 24-hour period. All gifts are tax-deductible. And now, through a match, anything you give is doubled. Anything you can give will be doubled. Use your cell phone, dial pound 250, say the keyword baby, 
That's pound two five zero. Say baby or donate securely at preborn.com slash buck. Sponsored by Preborn. Want more Clay and Buck that you didn't hear on the show? Get podcast extras in the Clay and Buck podcast feed. Find it on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny. The warmth of Fredo and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the juicy. podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. All right, second hour, Clay and Buck kicks off right now, everybody. And we're talking about the border. New numbers out from Customs and Border Patrol. 200,000 plus migrant encounters since December 1st. It's only December 21st. 20 days. Over 10,000 illegal entries into the United States every day. Um, it's a big deal, everybody. Uh, we've got our friend Julio Rosas with us now. He's a Substack writer, so he's independent journalist, mostly peaceful Dot Life is his substack. Uh, and Julio, thanks for being here. Tell us where you are on the border and give us some sense of what you're seeing. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me, Buck. So right now I am by International Bridge 2 in Eagle Pass, Texas. Uh, I've been to this spot many times over the past few years, and this is by far the worst I've ever seen it. And it's because normally with the previous high encounters, they were able to keep, Border Patrol was able to keep the illegal immigrants all under the bridge. They're constantly 
they had to have they're using the this little depression that's right next to the bridge as this massive holding area and as i've been seeing this morning um as soon as border patrol clears out one of the lines uh, to process people another group that has crossed comes in and fills that spot back up right again so it is you know towards the end of the year we're heading into an election year where people are right now feeling that maybe this is you know kind of the last year for them to illegally enter the country this way, you know, in case there's a turn, a change in the administration uh, for the White House. So, you know, there's a lot of factors as to why not just Eagle Pass, but multiple areas along the border are experiencing an even bigger surge when compared to the past couple of years. So this is, just to be clear, Julio, a, a part of the Biden effect. I remember when Biden first came into office, there were illegals at the border who were on video saying, we're here because Joe Biden promised us we could come into the country or because Joe Biden's the president, we know we can stay in America now. And now there's a sense of, well, we better get in before there's the possibility that Joe Biden is not the president and you have a Republican administration. Border Patrol, first off, will, will they are they able to talk to you much, Julio? Because I remember under the Trump administration, it was come see what we're doing, talk to us. Under the Biden administration, I can't anybody, I can't get anybody to give me a ride along anymore. Nobody will talk to me in ICE. Nobody wants to talk to me in Border Patrol except for some of the union guys who have the ability to without fear of their jobs. Yes. I mean, yeah. I mean, to answer the first part, yeah, this is absolutely a consequence of the Biden administration. It has been since day one. I, I've, I've, I've called the border crisis his first crisis because he undid everything, um, on his first day, literally day one. Um, and yeah, no, in terms of with Border Patrol, they, I mean, there, there's a reason why they leak to me, they leak to Bill Malusian, and they leak to some of the other border reporters because they cannot directly, uh, talk to media because the Biden administration knows that if Border Patrol agents in their official capacity were able to candidly, you know, not, you know, politics aside, you know, they're able to candidly and honestly relate to us what they're seeing every day. It would make them. It would make the Biden administration look bad, and so that's why. Yeah, I mean, the last time I was with Border Patrol was in 2020, right before, right before the election in October. Uh, that's the last time I did anything official with them. Everything else has been through with Texas law enforcement uh, or or the Border Patrol Union, and and which is hysterical because if you remember, the Biden administration was coming in saying, "Oh, we're going to be the most transparent administration," you know, compared to the last guy. And that's just, and, and you know, that's false on many fronts. But I, I can tell you, with my experience with the border, that is absolutely not true. And if you remember, when Title 42 was going away uh, earlier this year, and there was that dip in encounters, the Biden administration was trying to take a victory lap, saying, "Ah, see, you know, there was no, there was nothing to worry about. Everything, you know, there was just fear mongering from Republicans." But the only reason why that there was a dip in illegal crossings was because the migrants in Mexico wanted to see, okay, well, you know, with this new change. Is this going to affect us? And as we've seen, you know, they, they, it's, this is still very much a free-for-all. We're speaking to our friend Julio Rosas. He's down in Eagle Pass, Texas, right on the U.S.-Mexico border, covering the most just overflowing and and uh, overrun border in certainly in, in the last 20 years. Uh, Julio, to that end, what is the pro- – I mean, when there's – I saw in the New York Post they said there are 200 migrants for every Border Patrol officer right now in Eagle Pass. Uh, it's probably more than that, but that's what their estimate is. And uh, what is the processing actually like? When they're that overwhelmed, when resources are stretched that thin, 
what is it like? I mean, somebody shows up, they say what, and Border Patrol does what after they enter the country illegally? So uh, typically it takes about 20 minutes to fill out this paperwork, and essentially it's just, you know, what, what are you doing here? Where are you from? Where are you trying to go? Um, and then it's a matter of scheduling their court date if they're going to claim asylum. Um, now, of course, as, as we've seen, there's a lot of people who are not asylum uh, in the strictest definition for that the U.S. gives that claim for. A lot of these people, not everyone, but a lot of these people are economic asylum seekers, which doesn't fall under the protections that, that they're trying to seek. But um, that that's the problem. When you have all these people, you can't really take the time to really go through their history, go through the background checks, which are completely incomplete because it depends on if their home country is reliable to provide that update to us in the States. So, and, you know, of course, it's not just Central or South America. This is people coming from all over the world. So um, the, the background checks are very, very minimal. The, the, the initial screening is very minimal. Uh, but because, again, the Biden administration wants to avoid the optics of having all these people waiting outside for days on end, it's just process them, process them as quickly as we can. It's basically like a conveyor belt, essentially, it, where it, it, who it's is, really quick. Is anyone immediately, like, turned around and expelled from what you're seeing? How often does that happen? That, that if, if they are, you know, found to be, you know, you know they just, cannot make a claim for whatever reason with depending on their answers or if they have you know, if something pops back up on a criminal background check uh that takes a that takes a day or two um and and as we've seen uh they're they're deporting about a couple uh, you know a step in the right direction but it's a drop in the bucket when you have thousands coming across and then how, wait, how many are they deporting do you actually you, you cut off there at least for me for a second how many are being deported uh, a couple hundred per day um, couple of hundred. Okay, so ten thousand. Just to be ten thousand are entering across the whole border, and from what you can tell, a couple of hundred is that in your sector? That, that's for that's for the entire that's for the entire southern border. That's the whole border. Okay, so I just want to I want everyone to hear these numbers, right? Ten thousand illegal entries a day. Eh, a couple of hundred who are told, no, 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 you don't get to stay. So nine thousand eight hundred are like free and clear, go into the United States, do whatever they want. Maybe we'll see them in five years in court, but we won't. Okay. Uh, how does Border Patrol feel about this? I mean, they've got to be looking at this like, are they like the welcoming committee? They, they're, they're completely demoralized. Um, they've been demoralized going on two years now. I mean, there, there's there, the, the number of resignations and early departures from Border Patrol because this isn't what they signed up to do. They, they, they didn't sign up to be essentially Walmart greeters and Uber drivers for, for people who are entering the country this way. And the problem is that now it's not just the Border Patrol agents, but it's the towns. The, you know, people, you know, for people who don't know, border communities on both the American and the Mexican side rely on the, the ports of entry being open. Well, right now, there's only one bridge that is completely open for vehicular traffic. When I was coming back from Mexico into the United States yesterday, well, there was one gentleman with his wife who was about to enter the United States, and he had been in line for 11 hours in his car. He had been in there since 6 a.m., and he was finally getting into the border by, by around 5 p.m. Um, and so that disrupts trade, that disrupts the local economy. Um, so it's not just the border patrol agents that are feeling this, it's, it's the towns on both sides. And, and it's a problem when it's not just one town, right? It's all these other towns that are also having uh, El Paso, their, their rail operations were, were suspended because the custom agents, custom officers have to be redeployed elsewhere to provide back patrol agents.
So it's not, yeah, it's not even just that the border's wide open for the cartels to smuggle in drugs. Alongside the human smuggling, it's shut down for legitimate commercial activity now because of the, I mean, this is, it really just keeps getting worse, uh, Julio. Um, is, is there any sense at all from the people you talk to down at the border who are tasked with trying to keep this from just, I don't know, I don't know how much worse it could really get, but trying to hold it together to the degree they can? You know, the Senate is talking about some kind of change in rules and maybe the Biden administration will do something. Is the belief that, that the numbers will start to go down next year in anticipation of the election? Or is everyone just saying, throw your hands up in the air, it's going to be a free-for-all? Hey, the, the, the common sentiment is that it's going to be a free-for-all. Because like I said, right, when we when we have an election with, with Donald Trump probably being the nominee and, you know, having you know, his history when it comes to the border – um, a lot of people are definitely going to see, definitely going to make that decision. You know, they, they've seen all their friends, they've seen all their families who already made the journey and already in the United States. Um, you know, if, if they were waiting before, the election is going to kind of put light a fire under them to be like, okay, we have this is it's now or never because they they don't want to have to risk of uh, that this golden ticket, this golden opportunity, uh, you know, them missing out on it. Uh, so I think I think that's like I was saying I think that's part of the reason why December is just getting absolutely slammed right now with, with the numbers because um, I mean the, the primary you know, the Iowa primary is next month right so or the caucus excuse me um, so I mean this we're we're getting the full swing of election season they're seeing all their friends and family here um, and, and it's pretty interesting too because you know a lot of the the sanctuary cities in in the United States they're they're saying that we can't take anymore. Well, I'm here to tell them that too bad they're coming because the Biden administration isn't going to stop them. Yeah, New York, Chicago, L.A., and others, they're going to keep getting more and more of the illegals that they already admit they cannot afford to take in. They cannot handle as the numbers are piling up. Um, Julio, always good to have some from the front lines, down on the ground uh, perspective on this. So thank you for your your field work down there in um in uh, Eagle Pass, and uh, go check out Julio Rosas's uh, Substack, mostly peaceful life. Julio, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, people who love to save money have found something really fun: the Upside app. Carrie, my wife, she loves a good deal. I'll tell you, she gets so excited. Sometimes I say, "Honey, let's have you know steak tonight." She'll come home with pork chops. She's like, "The pork chops were two for one." I'm like, "Okay, okay," you know. She loves a good deal. So she loves the Upside app because when you go go purchase gas, groceries, or you go to any number of thousands of participating restaurants, you just get cash back. So if you download the Upside app, it's free in the app store. It's free. Just download it. Totally free. Download it, and it'll take you about a minute to register. And from then on, it'll tell you which gas stations are closest to you that give you 35 to 40 cents off a gallon. Same Upside app will also direct you to grocery stores in your area that will give you 11 or 12% back on your grocery purchases. And it'll direct you to the Starbucks or Jersey Mike's or Chick-fil-A and thousands of other restaurants that give you cash back on your purchases. Every time you open the app, find one of those locations and just click on the button that says you're going there, you get cash back onto your credit card. It just goes right back onto that credit card. To get started, download the free Upside app. Use my name, Buck. That's important because, you know, you heard about it here. Use my name, Buck, as your promo code, so we'll get credit. And you get an extra 25 cents back for every gallon on your first tank of gas with Upside. So go into that app store. Download the Upside app. Make sure you use promo code Buck. 
um, and you're going to be saving money. It adds up to hundreds of dollars over the course of the year, and it's fun, too, because you're just saving day in and day out. Check out the Upside app promo code BUCK today. The torch of truth, past and still lit every day. The Clay, Travis, and Buck Sexton Show. All right, third hour, Clay and Buck gets going right now, and we have a few things to talk about in this hour, some uh, some news items. Um, first off, uh, I mentioned Home Alone in the last hour, and somewhat, one of our VIPs came to me with this. I just wanted to be clear that uh, VIP David says, the parents did try calling the neighbors. In fact, the wet bandits were robbing one of them and heard Kevin's mother leave a message on the answering machine. Okay, touche, bar from fencing there. You see, we're bringing it all together. Point taken. However, I mean, I think they could have called, like, the local police and said we have a kid home alone. Right? I mean, I think there are ways to get this done, right? Oh, but I guess Kevin convinced people that there were, there were adults in the house. I, I See, I haven't seen the movie in a while, but I do love the movie. It's a very, very fun movie. Um, Although the tarantula scene still, you know, ooh. People had pet tarantulas for a while. Think about that. That was a thing. That was a thing. I don't know. Does anyone in this audience have a pet tarantula? Are we, you guys are amazing. I can ask someone to call in to tell me about a, you know, a form of brain surgery that's only been performed like twice yet in history and we'll have some expert call in. I'll ask, how do we, you know, fix excessive rotor wash on a Blackhawk helicopter? You know, I, I can, I can crowdsource any knowledge. But does anyone in this audience have a pet tarantula? I just feel like that's that's a bridge too far. Like that's a little too crazy. I mean, of all the things to have as a pet, and I'm I'm all for it. Don't tell my wife. I think having like a pet fox would be really cool. I've talked about this before. Um, I know they dig a lot. That's what people say they they they're really into that, and they they mark uh their territory a lot. So that's maybe a little more difficult. But I think they're really cute. Anyway, I just that was the thing at Home Alone that that always stuck with me as a kid was the uh, the tarantula scene was really um. Oof. Uh, that was not for me. Um, all right. And, uh, what else did I have here? Oh, how did Kevin, Mc- how did Home Alone's McAllister family afford their ultra lavish lifestyle? Finance experts reveal how much Kevin's parents would have to earn to pay for their huge mansion and first class trips to Paris. See, people, this is on the Daily Mail right now. People are going deep into Home Alone lore this time of year. Um, I wonder how the house I like, it's like a, what is it? A, um, like a colonial revival kind of, uh, style, I guess you'd call it. I don't know. It's brick, sort of brick facade. It's nice. It's nice. Um, all right. Enough of the home alone stuff for a little bit. I want to dive into something that is in the headlines. Once again, Harvard president <clears throat> Claudine Gay faces 44-0 new allegations of plagiarism with seven publications. Um, and there's a side by side of this. The thing about this is that you can, you can, speaking of crowdsourcing, the evidence can be shown for any to see. This is what she published as a graduate student, which is, I guess, suppose publicly available stuff, or for a thesis she wrote, or dissertation she wrote. Um, and here is other published work. And what you can see is that the president of Harvard is a plagiarist. Wow. Isn't that, isn't that so straightforward? Like, why do they have to pretend? Well, we know, we'll get into why they have to pretend, but it's very obvious that there is an issue here. Over at, uh, CNN, 
Jake Tapper asked the question so we can hear, or even CNN knows this is, this is apparent. This is what is going on. Harvard's got a problem on its hands. Uh, this is cut 19. Play it. Is Harvard University really holding its president, Claudine Gay, Dr. Claudine Gay, to the same standards when it comes to the plagiarism that it would assail for students committing the same offense? Harvard's top governing body said a review revealed, quote, inadequate citations by Dr. Gay in a few instances, but, quote, no violation of Harvard's standards for research misconduct, unquote. Critics of Dr. Gay and Harvard's review of the allegations say that there is a double standard going on here. The big question, I think, in the future is how will Harvard be able to punish any students found guilty of the same offense without inviting a lawsuit? There's clearly a double standard, and it's indefensible. It's, it couldn't be more obvious. And to this, I would just add, um, I would add that uh, this is this. It, who is it that who is it that said that if the Democrats didn't have double standards, they'd have no standards? Is there, is there someone who that quote is attributed to? I've I've heard it many times. Um, it's certainly apt. It's it's accurate. Uh, see, I don't want to plagiarize the quote. I don't know. I don't know who said it. I'm putting the quotation marks on it. But is it, is it Pat? Did Pat Buchanan say that first? Am I am I right on that one? Maybe. Anyway, someone check me on that one. Uh, but there's a double standard, just like the double standard where if you didn't pay taxes for five years or whatever it was, and millions of dollars of income, and you hid it intentionally through dummy LLCs and pass through corporations, um, unless you're Hunter Biden, you're going to prison. Probably you're in a prison. You know, kept away from your family, locked in a cell, prison for that. For you, for me, oh yeah. Hunter Biden, not going to spend a day. They didn't even want to prosecute him. And now he's not going to spend a day in prison, as you know. I've said that all along and I've been, continue to be. My, my cynicism, unfortunately, when it comes to the Biden crime family and the Democrat apparatus is pretty consistently rewarded by being correct, right? I mean, I, I just, I'll just put this out there. My, my, my cynical approach to the Democrats means that I kind of know what they're going to do and how they're going to play it. And that's certainly uh, accurate as well as you look at the president of Harvard and what's going to go on here. They're just going to twist language and words and play games and stall and delay. And, oh, we're on holiday. The Plagiarism Research Committee is all on, you know, Christmas or Hanukkah or Kwanzaa holiday, right? So we're all just not going to pay any attention to this. And they hope that it goes away and that in the new year, uh, people will just focus on, on something else. What, what the, I've said this to you and I do think it's, it's important, um, to remember this. It bears repeating as a result that uh, President Gay wanted a, and she, she is a, an entirely unexceptional academic based on her body of work and the publishing she's done. She's really a bottom percentile academic and that's just, you can check that. How many things has she published? How many, how many books, books has she written? Publish or perish is the cliche in academia and didn't publish very much at all. Elevated, elevated, elevated all the way up to being the president of Harvard University. And I think she was a dean at one point and she was a professor before that. Um, it, it just has an entirely unremarkable and, uh, really, really kind of paltry publishing record. And now on top of, so it's a minimal record of publishing. And on top of that, she's lifting passages. Now, I would say, if you read the, if you're really honest about this, oh, people are going to get all crazy on me. But if you're really honest about this, you know, there are gray areas in the plagiarism stuff. 
meaning, you know, okay, you're borrowing an idea, but is this an original idea or is this more of a fact? And, you know, so, you know, when in doubt, you cite is basically how it goes. But there's a little bit, if you read the regulations, like, oh, you're getting this idea from this person or if, you know, if you obviously, but if you take block quotes of someone else's straight up language and don't cite it and don't quote it, you're plagiarizing. Like, they, you know, there are the gray areas and then there's this. This is not a gray area. And in academia, this is treated very seriously because this is the work product of all these different people and, uh, and, you know, it's an ethical issue, but also the whole system sort of collapses. Like if you can just copy someone's paper and hand it in as your own, we're all geniuses, right? Uh, what you have here though is they can't give in on this. Again, my cynicism is part of my prescience, part of my ability to predict because I understand, I understand the other side. Um, I believe it was the great philosopher uh, Wesley Snipes in the movie Blade who says, when you understand the nature of a thing, you understand what it is capable of. And I understand the nature of the DEI system. So I know the lengths Blade underrated movie, by the way, not a Christmas movie, and I can't even recommend it because, uh, you know, a lot of violence and stuff is not good for the kids, but... You know, for the adults, pretty good, uh, back in the pretty good throwback superhero movie if you like superhero movies. But Wesley Snipes, if I remember correctly, because I've seen that movie too many times, does say that. And I understand, I was a Wesley Snipes fan of the 90s. Um, I understand that the DEI system begins to collapse if you hold people in the DEI system. The whole point is that they're not held to the same standards as other people. But the whole point of Elevating underrepresented minorities is they don't have the same record. They don't have the same skills or skill set. They don't have the same achievement, but we're going to pretend that they do because by creating that facade, we have a better, more inclusive and more diverse, uh, society. This is the argument, right? I mean, and, and they, they, they always run into this. Cognitive dissonance is a very important term here because they'll say, how dare you say they're changing the standards? And you say, okay, well, then why why can't you just keep using the SAT at this school? Oh, if you, if you, if you use the SAT, then it's clear that you are changing standards. So they have to get rid of it at different places, right? We all understand this. The standardized testing is, I, I, you know, you could say merit and achievement objectively understood are the greatest um, enemies of DEI, the DEI establishment. Standardized testing, though, is probably also the one that just, you know, because remember, we're told that the one of the reasons we need DEI in the first place, one of the reasons we have to elevate people like the president of Harvard to, you know, she's making seven figures and she's unfireable and she has all this power and prestige and all this stuff. Uh, we have to do this because society is so unfair that people from underrepresented groups don't get a fair chance to do these things. And we sit there and go, well, I mean, there's, there are plenty of people in society from all different backgrounds who have been amazingly successful. You know, there are, there are black, uh, black billionaires. There's been a black president. There's, there, are, you know, are Latinos and you, you go down the list, you say, no, actually in America, it's possible for anyone to be an incredible success, become incredibly influential uh, and, and wealthy. Um, but it's not possible for everyone to, right? And this is why the problem that Harvard ran into initially was the Asian uh, achievement issue, as in Asians, as a group, as an ethnic group in this in this country, overachieve relative to the rest of the 
demographics. Asians do better on standardized tests on average. Just facts. Supreme Court dealt with this. I know people, you can notice whenever you talk about this stuff, there are people just, ah, ooh, they get along. Oh, are you allowed to say that? Oh, I don't know. It sounds, you're talking about how well the Asians do on standardized testing sounds a little, little too right wing for me or something. What? It's just reality. It's just facts. It's the truth. We all know it. It's numbers. It's not opinion. It's numbers. Um, and that's what brought down the whole diversity and inclusion, affirmative action um, edifice in the Supreme Court, at least. Now, it's taking a long time for this to continue to – this fight is going to be ongoing. There's going to have to be a lot of lawsuits, and they're going to have to be situations like this. And that's why, bring it full circle back here to Dr. Gay, they cannot allow her to be fired for this, because if she can be fired for this, who else can be fired for this? Meaning, not just plagiarism, but other people who underperform – when they've been elevated because of the superficial characteristics that the DEI apparatus is obsessed with. Underperformance or poor performance in your job should be the grounds then for removal. And that starts to open up the, well, where else is that going to be the case? Um, where else are you going to have people who are judged by objective metrics vis-a-vis their peer group in academia or wherever, instead of just the presence of this person in this role because of their race or their sexual orientation or whatever. Just their presence is in itself an unassailable good that cannot be questioned. Because ultimately, that's what DEI is all about. Ultimately, that's where it always ends up. That's where it always falls apart for those who apply um, logic, reason, and, and rationality. Also enemies of the DEI apparatus, as it stands. Um, I tell you all this, and I analyze it, and I say to you, she's going to keep her job. She's going to keep her job. You watch. She's going to keep her job. Because they haven't been pushed enough. Not enough lawsuits. Not enough. Honestly, the, the left-wing DEI system has not suffered enough losses or enough financial pain to abandon any of this yet. And it's going to be a long, it's going to be a long, drawn-out battle to get them to adhere to both the letter and spirit of the Supreme Court decision that came down on affirmative action and on all of it. Now is when, now is when the fighting over this happens, right? So keep that in mind. You know, a friend of this program, Dutch Mendenhall, became an author, book author for the first time this year. And look, I know the hard work that goes into writing. I'm doing it myself these days. It's no easy feat. A lot of hours spent alone. A lot of hours going, I wish I could go out and, you know, play tennis and hang out with everybody. But no, I must write my book. I must write my book. That's what I'm telling myself today after the show. But Dutch, he's done a great book. It's called Money Shackles. He runs a company with a co-founder, Rad Diversified, that specializes in identifying alternative investments, many of them in real estate, and creating increased wealth for all of those working with Rad Diversified. So this new book by Dutch, Money Shackles, takes on the topic of debt and how to productively use it. If you have car loan debt, student loan debt, just name a couple of examples, Dutch shows you how to use that to your advantage. Uh, to him, it's not a bad thing. It's a productive thing, but you have to know the right strategies, the right way to do it. And he guides you into alternative investment vehicles that can be very lucrative. Dutch's way to redefine your American dream 
is to, well, first do this. Read Money Shackles, okay? Get ready for the redefined American dream with Money Shackles. Go to moneyshackles.com. Break free from your Money Shackles today. That website, again, is moneyshackles.com. Keeping it real. Keeping it honest. Clay Travis and Buck Sexton. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carvin and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome back in. Taking some calls about Christmas, whatever we've talked about on the show today. Uh, we're going to be easing into the holidays here. Uh, I'm, I'm not actually going to New York City, but I saw this thing about how New York City has made Airbnbs less than 30 days uh, no longer allowed. And so the average hotel room in New York City is up 20%. I mean, it was already too expensive, but now it's way too expensive. It's crazy, crazy stuff. Speaking of crazy stuff, I, I should have known better. I said, do we have anybody... I don't think anyone in this audience actually has a pet tarantula. Now, why did I bring this up? I brought it up because in the movie Home Alone, which is a great Christmas movie, there's a scene where one of the burglars um, is bitten by, it's not Kevin's pet tarantula, it's Buzz, his, is it his brother or his cousin? His brother, right? Older brother? I mean, they look nothing alike, but it's his brother, right? Yeah. Uh, so we got a bunch of people. John in Staten Island says he has a tarantula, he had a tarantula for the kids, 
and they're actually buying a new one today. John, are you messing with me? No, 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 Buck. How you doing? We're going to have one under the tree. It's not going to have a Santa hat on, though. But, but okay, Dude, explain not... explain this to me. Like, what? Like, a tarantula's a pet. Why? Why? How do we get there? What's the What's the uh, upside? They have an adventurous spirit. I'm one of those parents. I, you know, we're, we're all the crazy things we do for our kids. So they go on adventures. We it says like uh, the, they hunt for things, clues and this and that, traps and all that. There's a treasure hunt. They found a tarantula at the end. They were surprised. My daughter's kind of like a tomboy. She's got crabs. She's got lizards. And uh, yeah, they saw it. They're surprised. They loved it. Unfortunately, they they did accidentally kill the first one. Poor Curly. Rest in peace. And um, so this is uh, Curly's. Second chance, a little resurrection of uh, the tarantula. It'll be under the tree. Big surprise. They're going to be very happy to see them. <laughs> You're going to have. Can you send in an email to our team? I want to see a photo of the tra- of the tarantula under the tree. Is there any? Do they? You know, they look scary. Do they actually? Do you have to worry about them? They're, I know they're they're not like really venomous, right? But they have the big pin. They have the big. Uh, is it? No, no, not pincers. What do you call it? Fangs. Um, do they bite, or is that not really a thing? I'm not, I'm not touching it. I, I skeeve them. People have, you go to the pet stores, they have scorpions, they have pet uh, roaches, cockroaches, not touching a thing. It's very low maintenance from what I hear. I, I, I think they're prickly. They can irritate your skin. There's a fancy word for uh, the hairs on their body. I, I don't know. I'm not touching the thing. And it's low maintenance. You put it in the corner, you spray it with water, throw some crickets in there, you're done. And that's for them. Okay, so you, so you don't handle it. Like, it's just in there to look at. It's almost like a fish. Pretty much. Okay, because it could th- it could like bite somebody with those things, right? I mean, that's that which wouldn't be good. Take the next call and ask them. I don't know. My kids are crazy. I'm crazy, <laughs> okay. but we go all out for the kids. So. Hey, John in Staten Island. First of all, you remind me of home. Second of all, uh, just do me a favor. Don't don't let Santa get bitten by the tarantula this year, all right, buddy? Keep no your problem. hands clear of the cage. All right. Thank yeah. you. Thank you, John. Thanks for calling in. Oh my gosh, we got more. You people are, you pe- I love you people. You people are nuts. You people are nuts. Jeff in Fort Myers, Florida. Tarantula for five years. Can you answer the, so it's, it's basically just like, uh, like a terrarium or aquarium pet, right? You never touch it. It doesn't crawl over your shoulders or anything or your hand. You just have it to look at. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And definitely the most exciting time is, is feeding time, as you can see him strategizing how to get those bugs. Um, that was always a good time. He, he, uh, my son, Josh, had him out from time to time, uh, never really crawled across us, just kind of get him out to, to get some exercise. Uh, but he's a, he was a good guy. He, my son uncovered him uh, during construction work. He died December of 2020, Christmas. Uh, and we just uncovered him in his little casket, uh, two days ago at, with construction work. So now we get to talk about his, his tarantula all over again. Wait, wait, wait. So you had a little tarantula casket? We did. Yeah. Wow. I'm learning, yeah, I'm did. learning all and kinds of things covered, today. Covered him, man. He was his, uh, we haven't taken him out of it yet, but, uh, it looks like he's pretty much intact in the, in the kid's little casket there. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. I, uh, very, very interesting stuff. I mean, for me, spiders, I'll just say this. I go snake before I go spider as a pet. And, and I'm not a reptile guy. Um, in general, I, I, I hold the, the animals with fur are, you know, those are my, that's, those are my special. I like those. 
Uh, and then we get to reptiles. For me, the arachnids, that's where we really start to get into, uh, another, another space, another place. I, are, I think, are scorpions technically an arachnid? I think, I think they are. I also believe, and I'm going to have the team fact check me on this in real time. I did not Google this. I don't know why I know this, but I believe the name tarantula is related to the dance that was done in Italy called the tarantella which they thought if you were bitten by a tarantula and you did this dance, um, you would not, like the venom wouldn't hurt you. Check that one, guys. That may be, the problem with the Internet, as Abraham Lincoln once said, is there's so much stuff on the Internet that's not true. And you just got to keep, you got to keep your eyes open. But I believe the Tarantella thing may be true. There's some, uh, there's some crossover there. Joseph in Pennsylvania wants to weigh in on plagiarism gate. What's up, Joseph? Hey, so when I was in college... About 20 years ago, um, I had an issue where I was considered and called out that I plagiarized. The process that I had to go to without being expelled from this college, it was insane. I had to plead with these people to keep me. And how I actually won was I printed out uh, articles of that day from people that wrote for Yahoo and Google to show that people make human errors, make mistakes. And these are coming from, you know, writers that write for for Yahoo and, you know, Google, and it's getting past the editors. So there is human mistake. There is human error. Well, of course, and this is what what I was saying before. I mean, if you're you're writing a book, let's say, and you're going to have 300, 500 citations – if you miss one citation, are you a plagiarist? I mean, you know, this is like, exactly. if you jaywalk, are you a criminal? Do we all have to walk around calling you a criminal? No, there's obviously gradations and, and there's, you know, levels of these things. But what Dr. Gay is accused of is informal papers as a career academic in graduate school, just copying and, pa- copy and pasting whole sections. And she didn't publish very much. More than half of her publicly published work contains uh, information that is, or, you know, uh, contains writing that is, is plagiarized. Um, am I right about the Tarantella guys? Or is this what you're telling me? Yeah. There's an Italian folk dance called the Tarantella that is, relates to the Tarantula in some capacity. I, I, I can't read it. You guys gotta tell me if I'm right. Am I, I am right. The Buckster nails it. He even knows things about furry spiders. That's why you tune in every day. You never know what you're going to get here on the show. Uh, and now we've got, let me see. We got one, we got one more here. Oh yes. Dr. Jason. I'm assuming a, an academic. He's in North Carolina, a research scientist. What's up, Dr. J? Hey, sir. How are you doing? Thanks for taking Good. my call. Thank you. So I'll tell you, um, I heard this story, you know, days ago. Um, my stomach, my stomach sank, as uh, I think a lot of us that um, do research for a living uh, take a lot of pride in our in our work. We have integrity. Um, this is science that we are producing for future generations to ask further research questions. But plagiarism at that level, although it, it's absolutely horrible on uh, Dr. Gay's part. It does open your mind, too, to the larger problem in academia, how it got that far. I've sat on many, as chair of many dissertation committees, 
And, boy, I take that personally. I, I look at that doctoral student's uh, work with a fine-tooth comb. We can't have any reproducing uh, what they consider uh, first-hand knowledge based on somebody else's academic work. Um, I, I take this work seriously. We don't do this type of work for money, for fame. We do it because we love what we do. We want to advance the science to advance people, healthcare, social sciences, um, world science. I mean, whatever the outcome may be. That is no, I hear you. You you do it for for passion, passion for the work. Um, but let me ask you this: Should the president of Harvard be fired? Absolutely. Yeah, I had a feeling. And, and unfortunately, that. I've let students go in doctoral programs before for these similar issues, because we can't have that. We we just can't have it. It has to be clean. But you know, through my years in academia, as I've gone now into my third decade. It's it's pervasive. I, I see it, and in fact, it's recently. Yeah, and with AI and everything, it's all only going to get. I think. I mean, in some ways, it's easier to find people, but also there's more and more ways to construct things that you haven't written, and we'll see. Thank you for calling in, Doctor Jason. Um, guys, we're gonna uh, chat a little bit more here. Uh, we're gonna close up shop in just a few minutes, um, but I wanted to take more of your calls, also give you some Christmas thoughts, tell you what we're gonna talk about tomorrow on the show. I can't believe tomorrow will be my last. It will be my last Clay and Buck show for the year, for 2023. Um, wow. The passage of time, my friends. Time passes more quickly when you get a great night's sleep. That's for sure. My pillow. They are problem solvers over there. You want a better night's sleep? You, uh, want to get the most comfortable sheets and mattress topper imaginable. You'll get that from my pillow. You want a pair of slippers you can wear year round, indoor and outdoor that are so comfortable. They've got them, the my slippers. Now you can add to this a line of towels created to solve the dilemma. How do you find towels that are soft and absorbent? This new line of towels goes by the name My Towels, noticing a trend. And they're made with 100% long staple Sherper cotton. To you and me, that means the cotton used makes these towels absorbent and super soft. You can get a six-piece towel set for as low for a low introductory price of $29.98 with our names as your promo code Clay and Buck. Get the designer premium line for just $20 more. No matter what set you decide on, that's 50% in savings. To find this offer, just go to MyPillow.com. Click on the Radio Listener Special Square. Check out the new My Towel six-piece towel set. Get 50% in savings. Enter promo code Clay and Buck when you go to MyPillow.com. Get the towel set. It's a great last-minute stocking stuffer or to go under the tree. You can cover up the tarantula that might be under that tree. Get yourself some My Towels. Get yourself some today. Need a break from politics? A little comedy to counter the craziness? So do we. The Sunday Hang, a weekend podcast to lighten things up a bit. Find it in the Clay and Buck podcast feed on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening.